0: Greetings from uh, Ralph Winter, one of the editors of your textbook, who called yesterday afternoon over at Bethlehem and we had a chance to talk. And I said, well, I'm talking at Perspectives tonight and tomorrow night. And he said, oh, please give my warmest greetings to my friends in the Perspectives class. He has a real fondness in his heart for this class around the country. And so I extend to you his regards. Well, the way I see the two pieces that I've been able to uh, put in this puzzle, the first and the last, is that in the first lecture I tried to answer the question, what's the goal of God in history? Or you could bring that down and say, what's the goal of missions? What's the goal of life? And the answer was, uh, God's goal is to glorify himself in everything that he does And my topic assigned tonight is World Christian Discipleship, and the way I'm interpreting that just because it's the way I see life is that now I'm going to try to answer the question about motivation. If you know the goal, then you know the direction that you're heading, what you want to accomplish but a big question remains is where's the power come from or what's the driving force behind that goal? And so those are the two questions that I consider it my job to answer. The first one, where are we heading or what's God up to in the universe? And now tonight, if you want to be a part of that, what should be the power or the driving force in your heart. And um, I'm going to talk about Christian hedonism. And I, I think I mentioned that somewhat at the beginning. It's a term that I use to describe my philosophy of life and what I think biblical religion is. And I want to begin, therefore, by defining it for you. And then make a thesis statement and give you six reasons for the thesis statement and that'll take us two hours um, the definition of Christian hedonism comes in five steps number one everybody in the world you and me included have a massive deep irresistible desire to be happy everybody desires to be happy Number two, that desire is put there by God and it's good and should never be resisted, but rather nurtured and cultivated and strengthened. Third step in the definition: the only full and lasting happiness is found in God. The only full and lasting happiness is found in God. And the reason I choose those two adjectives, full and lasting, is because we won't be satisfied without both of those. By full, I'm talking about quantity and quality and intensity. By lasting, I mean it can't ever come to an end. If you offer me a a 10,000 year happiness, after which there'll be misery, I, I'm not interested. I want one that is going to not let me down, not cater out on me, ever. So full and lasting. I get that from Psalm 16, 11. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand are pleasures, what? Forevermore. See the two words, fullness of joy pleasures forevermore in God. So that's step three in the definition. This passionate longing for happiness that you and I have ought not to be resisted, it ought to be glutted on God, where alone you'll find full and lasting happiness. Fourth step in the definition of Christian hedonism. Hedonism is... I don't know if that's a familiar term to you. It's a philosophical term referring to the pursuit of pleasure, and I'm just baptizing it into Christianity. Um, The fourth step in the definition is that the consummation of the happiness that you find in God happens when that happiness spills over in love to other people. That's a long and complicated one then. we're going to talk about it in about an hour. But let me say it again and, and maybe just give you a little illustration. Um, the consummation, that is, it reaches its climax. This joy that you find in God reaches its climax or its consummation when it begins to spill over in love to other people. So picture a, a glass here. You're empty, an empty glass, and God's the fountain, and he begins to fill you. With his delicious living water. And it comes right up to the top. And gets within just an eighth of an inch of the top. And you're just. You're having the most wonderful experience. As God fills you up. And he stops. And it lasts. A week. A month. A year. But if, if something doesn't happen. That water gets tepid. And begins to get a film on the top of it, and it's not going to satisfy. So what I mean is that the joy that you get from God must reach that tension service surface breaking point at the top where all of a sudden it spills down and starts getting other people wet. Joy increases when it extends itself to another. So that's the fourth step in the definition. You will not reach the consummation of the joy that you long for until you begin to spill over onto other people with the joy that God has spilled into you from his fountain. Finally, number five. The implication of all this is to try to resist or deny your desire for pleasure is to resist the possibility of virtue and worship, or to strive against virtue and worship. Let me me state it positively. The pursuit of pleasure, as I've just outlined it, is a necessary part of all virtue and all worship. That's the key sentence in numbers five. The pursuit of pleasure is a necessary, not an optional, a necessary part of all virtue and worship. Now, the reason I'm so concerned to, to talk this way tonight and to tell you that world Christian discipleship must be driven by this motor is because I care about worship. And I care about virtue and love. And there is so much abroad in the land today that makes the essence of discipleship the denial of the quest of happiness. It isn't always made real explicit. You just kind of get the flavor. It sort of hangs in the air that if you really want to be a disciple of Jesus, you must deny yourself happiness Mark 8.34, right? He would come after me, mistake, up his cross and deny himself. Now, nobody ever quite gets to the meaning of that text, which we'll do later on. It's just sort of left hanging that if you care about being happy, if you're driven by the motor of happiness, you can't be a disciple of Jesus. You're worldly. And I'm going to argue that you can't resist it. And the more you try the more you will strive against love and strive against worship. You should nurture it, cultivate it, strengthen it, and glut it on God. Now, that's my thesis. That genuine discipleship, world Christian discipleship, has to be driven by the motor of of uh, Christian hedonism, or this quest for pleasure and happiness and joy. And I want to give you six reasons for that, And we'll just unpack these as much as we have time for. Reason number one. God is breathtaking. You know the, the song that you sing that's taken from Psalm 27, 4. One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. To behold the beauty of the Lord. If you had asked David, what do you really want in life? And beyond life, what do you want more than anything else? He would say, to see God. Because God is breathtaking. Why do people have on their coffee tables at home these big, glossy books. Minnesota. Rivers. Mountains. And you open them and they're, and they're just magnificent, glossy photographs of nature. Why? Why do people buy those books? It's because of this hunger that people have for something breathtaking. Why do people take scenic vacations to the Grand Canyon? I just got a postcard two weeks ago from Elias Olma, who is a Cameroonian seminary student in Sioux Falls, a good friend who spent some holidays with us. At, uh, he's from Cameroon and had never seen anything like the Grand Canyon, and he went on a singing tour, and he wrote us a postcard from the Grand Canyon and tried to put into words what he felt as he stood at the edge of that mammoth display of power. Through the centuries, there is something in us that makes us hunger for, for the breathtaking. Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, He has put eternity into man's mind, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I think that verse says, in every human heart, God has put the seed of eternity. And people don't know what it is without revelation. They don't know what they're really longing for. Have you ever read C.S. Lewis on this? He calls it the inconsolable longing. And if you want a taste of C.S. Lewis, the best introduction would be to buy... A Mind Awake, it's an anthology by Clyde Kilby and there's a whole section on the inconsolable longing. Listen to these two sentences from Lewis. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If people could just be shown that what they're really after when they create movie trilogies like Star Wars. Why are those movies so spectacularly successful? Well, because there's this incredible longing for some massive experience, something breathtaking, something awesome and thrilling that we
1: just crave.
0: And so people go to those movies and they sit there and in a kind of artificial way experience what they were made to experience in God. Um, He wrote further, it was when I was happiest that I longed most. The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to find the place where all beauty came from. Lewis had learned that every beauty in this world left him empty, as great as it was. And so he knew he was made for something else, namely the maker of the beauty, something breathtaking called God. These are all echoes. These beauties, these books on our coffee tables, these movies, these exploits of climbing mountains or going to distant places like the Alps to see something, they're all echoes of a shout that we're longing to hear, and we don't quite hear it until our ears are opened to the voice of God. Things like scenic vacations, accomplishments of creativity, stunning cinematic productions, sexual exploits, sports extravaganzas like 88 pianos, hallucinogenic (laughs) drugs, uh, aesthetic rigors. Why do people commit such extreme aesthetic rig- rigors? Managerial excellence—that's one of the biggies in America. You know the passion for excellence. And, and
1: why? What's this
0: questing for a bigger company? And no fly on the counter in, in Burger King. No hair in the French fries. you, 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 you tre- Managerial excellence today is what the old Western was hundred years ago. The, the pioneering spirit, the conquesting frontier spirit. Men today that they conquer they conquer business spheres and their quick draw is is the one-minute manager and so on. They, 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 we just want so bad for some great accomplishment or some immense experience. And so my point is God is behind all that. He's left his footprints in the human soul and he's breathtaking. And as soon as you know that God is breathtaking, an obligation is upon you. Picture yourself as a tour guide on a bus in Switzerland. And your job is to show people what's there, that they're after. And so the bus is driving down the road and you're not seeing anything spectacular that you can't see in North Carolina for a while. And then all of a sudden you turn a corner and
1: this massive
0: peak rises in front of you. The top is up into the clouds. If you see it first as the guide, there is something wrong with you. If you don't turn around and say, excuse me, have your attention. We're coming up on, look, look. And the better guide you are, the more you'll be full of that mountain when you say, look. And the better guides we are in this world, the more full we are of the breathtaking power of God. There there is something about God that once it captures you, so stuns and holds your attention, that there's something strange and awful and wrong about the human heart if it doesn't say,
1: look. You've ever seen such a thing?
0: So my first reason for why you should pursue pleasure in God is because God is breathtaking. He is the satisfaction of that questing longing and he is for others so that it just lies upon you to say, look, and that's a tremendous implication for missions. That's reason number one. Second reason. The word of God commands us to pursue our joy. The word of God commands you to pursue your joy. For example, Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord. It's a command. Delight yourself in the Lord. Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say, rejoice. There's a quote I've been using for years from a man named Jeremy Taylor, and I was so excited because I was with Noel over in Dinkytown uh, on Thursday, on our day off, and uh, she and Barnabas and I went to the Pizza Hut, which has the greatest deals in the world, I think. To have a mug that is bottomless and a personal pen pizza for a dollar and 79 cents is simply, it can't be beat for
1: going out. <laughs> not
0: a pizza, not a nut or pizza like that. So we finished our, 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 our mugs and our pizza and we took a walk down 4th Avenue uh, there and turned left at the uh, Bridgeman's and uh, if you go down that street on the left is a bookstore, a used bookstore and we went down in the basement and it's got ceilings of books. And I am a real nut. And there are two big sides of theology books. And I found, I couldn't believe what I found, in a beautiful binding, the first volume only of Jeremy Taylor's collected works, which was his life. Now, Jeremy Taylor, you probably don't give a hoot about who Jeremy Taylor is. But he was an old Anglican evangelical from the 17th century. And I've never seen a life of Jeremy Taylor. And I've been quoting him for all these years, and I don't know where the quote came from. I got it from C.S. Lewis in his anthology of MacDonald, And uh, <laughs> it was just in the introduction. But this is the, this is the quote that now maybe I'll find in this book when I get to it. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. It just so bolted me when I first read that. God threatens terrible things if we will not be happy. And I thought to myself, when I first read that, really? Like where? And then I started looking, and let me read you the most obvious place, maybe where he got this quote from the Bible. Deuteronomy 28.47 says, this is God speaking to Israel, because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart, by reason of the abundance of all things, therefore... You shall serve your enemies whom the Lord your God will send against you. Isn't that amazing? Because you did not serve me with gladness and with joyfulness of heart because of how much abundance I gave you, I'm going to sell you to your enemies. God threatens terrible things if we will not. So the Bible both positively commands it: delight yourself in the Lord. Don't deny your quest for delight. Glut it, glut it on God. And then He threatens you as though if you don't get the point negatively, if you don't do that, you're going to be destroyed. So holds in front of us this chocolate sundae, and says, "Now eat that." <laughs> And if you don't eat it, you won't get anything. That's really what he's doing. He knows what's best for us and what will bring us the most pleasure. He sets it in front of us and he says, eat it. And if we turn away to broken cisterns like Jeremiah says we do, then that's all. Now all. Now, let me, let me raise a couple of objections here that are typically raised to this point of pursuing our own pleasure. The first objection that that a person who is thoughtful might raise hearing this for the first time, somebody standing up and saying, actually, be a hedonist. Live for your pleasure. That's what I'm saying. They might say, wait a minute. Even if I agree with you that we ought to have pleasure and God is going to give us pleasure, what you're saying is going to backfire because... You ought to say, pursue God, not pursue pleasure. Because if you pursue pleasure, it backfires, and if you pursue God, then pleasure comes in as a result.
1: Now, what would we make out of that
0: objection? Is that valid? What does that actually mean? There's probably a good concern behind that question, and it might be that the person who says it and I would, would agree and mean almost the same thing, but... Let me show you why I don't settle for that. You know, I don't think it's helpful to say to people, in fact, I think it's positively misleading to say, pursue God, don't pursue pleasure. It's the negation that bothers me. Their concern, I'm sure, is that God be honored, and I am too. That's going to be my sixth argument, in fact. But let me use the analogy of an art museum and your visit to an art museum, Okay. Why should you go to an art museum? Somebody might say, for the art. And I might say, for pleasure. Then we could argue. Which should it be, for pleasure or for the art? But what we really need to ask, what do you mean, for the art? Picture two people going into a museum. Okay, Me, going for the pleasure, and this person here. This person we're going to call... Uh, a black market art dealer who knows that one of the paintings in there is worth $100,000 and the curator thinks it's only worth ten. He's going to get it. He doesn't give a hoot about art. He wants the 90000 profit because he likes what you can do with it, money. So we go in and somebody stops us and says, uh, what are you after? I say, I'm after pleasure. He says, what are you after? He says, I'm just going to look at the ark. I don't care whether I get any pleasure. Or I'm not pursuing pleasure. I just want to look at the ark. And he is going to look at the ark. Just as closely as I design. Now, I'm looking at this painting here. And my goal is to experience delight in that painting. He's looking at this painting and saying, Is that it? Is this the one? And his whole mindset is money. Now, at this point... I got a real insight into what people meant when they, what people mean when they say art for art's sake. I used to, I used to avoid that phrase like the plague. I still am a little bit fidgety with it. I always say art for God's sake. Keep things oriented on God. But I think I know now what the best meaning of the term art for art's sake is. Art for art's sake means Deal with art in a way that honors art. Experience art in a way that honors art, not money. Now my question is, I agree with you, how do you do that? This mercenary is not honoring art by the way he's dealing with art. He's not honoring art, though he might be looking at art Say God Pursue God is not enough to say pursue God. you got to talk about why you're pursuing God. It's not enough to say pursue art. you got to talk about why you're pursuing art because there is a pursuit of art that dishonors art and there is a pursuit of God that dishonors God. Now, what pursuit of art and what pursuit of God honor them? I think it honors the painting. Suppose the artist is standing there beside me and I'm looking at this painting and I'm saying... I don't even know he's the artist maybe, and I'm saying, this painting fills me with joy. Just look at the contrast and the texture and the tone and the color and the characterization in that face, and this painting is wonderful. It makes me so happy. It gives me a marvelous contented feeling and an aesthetic delight. Now, is he going to stand there and say,
1: you selfish (laughs)
0: talk 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 about your pleasure no because to delight in the art honors the art now same thing with God It it is it is not a dishonor to God to say that I pursue him for my pleasure it isn't it honors him we're going to come back to that at the end and try to show that when you say, I am pursuing my joy in God, then you have honored him. You haven't dishonored him. Here's another objection. This is a biblical one. namely the text, self-denial. Mark 8, 34, 35. He who would come after me, Jesus said, must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And again and again, that is quoted and left sort of hanging, giving the impression to young people and other people who don't think a long time about it or read the context, that Christianity means all these incredible longings that I have inside that I don't quite understand. I just know I want to be happy in life and fulfilled and contented. I must deny just read the rest of the text. Here's the ground clause. For he who would save his life will lose it. And he who loses it for my sake in the Gospels
1: will find it.
0: That's what I want is to find life. This, it, the argument is hedonistic. It's just amazing how many people don't see that it is sin to deny yourself a pleasure in a good thing in God or in Christ, in obedience. Um, Take Esau, for example, of somebody who failed to deny himself in this biblical way. Let me read you... uh, Hebrews 12, 15 to 17. See to it that no one fail to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness spring up and cause trouble, and by it the many become defiled, that no one be immoral or irreligious like Esau, here's what he did, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, What should he have done? Here were two things. A bowl of oatmeal and a birthright. A blessing from God. And he looks at the one and he looks at the other. And Jesus said, Esau, deny yourself the oatmeal. He says, no. I'll deny myself the birthright. You always deny yourself something when you make a choice. The point of Jesus' command is, deny yourself lower, unsatisfying, fleeting, sinful pleasures that you might have gold. Don't settle for bronze, let alone oatmeal. Go for gold. Go for God. That's the point of that text. Deny yourself all the temptations that the world holds out that will keep you from having maximum joy. I got a I got a letter in the mail the day before yesterday. No, yesterday. Yesterday was Monday, wasn't it? I wrote an editorial for the Tribune that was in Saturday about these condom ads on television, and argued that I thought it was it was a contradiction to uh, try to fight AIDS by glamorizing and promoting the cause of AIDS, namely uh, sexual promiscuity. Which those ads do necessarily promote. You can't promote toothpaste without promoting toothbrushing. So I wrote that. Well, the phone rang off the hook on Saturday, and poor Char was there, and she had to take all the calls. Our minister for children, and I didn't hear any of them, thank goodness. Um, but I did get a letter in the mail. I should have brought it along. I answered it today. It was Spy Guy. He gave his name, he gave his address, so I answered him. And I might even send him a copy of a book, I'll show you in a minute. But uh, uh, he said, you have got your head in the sand. You must be crazy if you think that I'm going to deny myself the pleasure of sexual sensation. I'm 38 years old and single and I happen to like sex. So does my girlfriend. I think... That if I don't have sex ever, just because I don't get married, my well-being is being jeopardized. In other words, his physical desires are what dictates his rights. I mean, this is 20th century America. Whatever desires you have, you have a right to satisfy. Now, I wrote him a letter today, I wish I had brought it along too, and I, I did not say you filthy, worldly, no good, lecherous hedonist. Which he is, probably.
1: <laughs>
0: but I said, I I went at it from a bunch of different angles. I said, I I love sex too. I'm I've married eighteen years, I have four sons, I think it's a great gift of God. But shouldn't you consider the possibility that it should be viewed in relationship to larger values like Loyalty and commitment and permanence and personhood and emotional depth. And and then I lifted it up a level and said, if God created it, shouldn't you take his judgment into into, into your consideration when you're deciding how to handle this power in your body? And then the last thing I said was, um, I don't think Jesus Christ was any less admirable or any less of a person because he never in his life had sex or ever with You're going to call Jesus a person with a deficiency in his personhood, in his well-being, because he had the power
1: to say no to his single drive for
0: sexual experience. Now, the point I'm trying to make here is, life holds out a thousand pleasures. And when Jesus comes along and says, deny yourself in order that you might be my disciple, he's not talking about denying yourself delight in God. He's not talking about denying yourself satisfaction for your soul thirst for something significant and meaningful and joyful in missions. He's talking about anything that will keep you from that. Like Hebrews says, lay aside every weight and care and sin Strip it off. Why? Because there's a wreath at the end of the, the track. And you don't want to stumble and fall while you're running the race.
1: You want gold.
0: You don't want to settle for petering out in the 22nd mile of the marathon. So, uh, I think that objection that Jesus teaches self-denial is true, but underneath it is a hedonistic argument that says... The reason to deny yourself short-term, fleeting, low pleasures that are offered by the world is to have the best in God and in obedience to God. So those are two objections. And the, uh, the second point was, you should pursue your pleasure in all that you do, in missions, in worship, in family life, in business life, because the Bible commands you delight yourself in the Lord, it commands you to pursue your pleasure. Reason number three why you should pursue your pleasure: emotions, or I like to use the word, uh, the old-fashioned word, affections, from Jonathan Edwards' whose book treatise concerning the religious affections is one of the greatest books I've ever read and would recommend very highly affections or emotions are essential to the Christian life not optional they're essential not optional now here I'm setting myself against an immensely powerful stream in contemporary American evangelicalism which seems to give the impression at least, especially in its evangelistic methodology, that becoming a Christian consists fundamentally in decision. And feeling and emotion and affection are not essential to the event. And I think what that has done is, first of all, give a non-biblical meaning to the concept of conversion and then fill our churches up with unborn-again people. Let me just give you some illustrations for what I mean when I say emotions are not optional. That is, in a heart that is truly Christ's, In a heart that is truly born of God, in a converted heart, there must be certain emotions. Now, when I say that, and I'll come back to this qualification in a minute to spell it out, I don't mean that they're consistently strong, high all the time, they fluctuate up and down, and life is a battle and a conflict and a war against deadness and, and uh lukewarmness, but I do mean they are there, or their seeds are there, and they are experienced regularly. Here is why I think that. For example, the Bible commands us not to covet. Thou shalt not covet. Covetousness is a feeling, not a decision. Its opposite is what? What word would you use for the opposite of covetousness? Exactly. And that is a feeling as well. And it's commanded. Hebrews 13.5, be content with what you have. Contentment is a feeling. It is not a decision. And it is commanded. Emotions are commanded in scripture. I remember reading as a junior in college the book Situation Ethics by Joseph Fletcher. One of his arguments to the effect that love is not a feeling is that it's commanded. I never bought that one minute, not even as a junior in college, because feelings are commanded all over the place in the Bible. That was no argument to me, and we're going to talk about love a lot after the break. Let me me give you some more feelings that are commanded. Leviticus 19.18, bear no grudge against your brother. Grudges, bitterness, are feelings. And the Bible demands that we not have them. Forgive your brother, it says, from your heart in Matthew 18. Or take love, for example. A little foretaste of what we're going to talk about. Romans 12.10 Love one another with brotherly affection. That's a feeling. That's not a decision. Brotherly affection. Or 1 Peter one twenty two, love one another
1: earnestly
0: from the heart. That's not just a decision when you can't stand somebody to do nice things for them. Here are other examples. Joy is commanded. Psalm 100 verse 2. Hope is commanded. Psalm 42 verse 5. Fear is commanded. Luke 12 verse 5. Peace is commanded, that you be peaceful and have the peace that uh, comes with justification is commanded. Zeal is commanded, Romans 12, 11. Grief for sin is commanded, Romans 12, 15. Desire for the milk of the word is commanded, 1 Peter 2, 2. Tenderheartedness is commanded. Ephesians 4.32 Brokenness and contrition are commanded. Psalm 51.17 Gratitude is not a decision. It's commanded. Ephesians 5.20 It is, you agree with that, don't you? That gratitude is not a decision. If you open a gift and it's something you can't stand you cannot decide to feel grateful you can decide to say thank you. And there is such a thing as hypocrisy. Gratitude either wells up in your heart because you are a grateful person or it doesn't. And you're guilty if it doesn't when you're given God's gifts. See, how serious our plight is. You see, I I did not understand myself as a sinner until I discovered these things because I grew up in a Christian home and never did anything really horrible and so when I came to confess my sins I tried so hard to think what I had done back couldn't think it too much because I had such an incredibly superficial view of sin it didn't have anything to do with my emotions they were somehow in a sphere that was all moral couldn't be touched Because they couldn't be commanded. If you can't command them, they can't be wrong. You can have them or not have them. It doesn't make any difference. Whether you have hope or zeal or grief or tenderheartedness or brokenness or gratitude or lowliness or peace or fear or hope or joy, it doesn't matter. But once you realize that God Almighty looks down on his creatures and says, Thou shalt not covet, thou shalt fall in those matters, then you know you're a sinner. You don't just do sin. Sin stops being a list of do's and don'ts. It starts being corruption. There's a corruption in my nature that makes me love money instead of God, makes me delight in food more than Bible reading, makes me love the television more than worship. I'm corrupt. And you, you you can't even begin to grasp what conversion is until you know how corrupt the human heart is. And yet so many people just go around saying the essence of conversion is decide, make a decision. And of course that's true. It's just so little of the need. It's so little of the gospel. So I'm trying to, to stress that emotions in which I include joy are essential. They are necessary. They're not optional. That's the third reason why we must pursue a change in our hearts so that we delight in the things of God. It's just awesome how many people come to church who hear preachers preach, who don't love, who don't love Christ, and who don't think it matters that they love Him because they've decided to say they believe in Him. And I just read this morning. I'm trying to get through the New Testament again in February because we challenged everybody in Bethlehem to read through the New Testament once a month in, in 1987, and I'm 40 pages behind. This month, <laughs> this month only has 28 days, and I don't know what I'm mean going to get through. But I was whipping through First Corinthians and Second Corinthians this morning, but I couldn't go so fast to miss what he said in First Corinthians 16, verse one of the last two verses: "He who has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. How many preachers say that? They say, he has no faith in the Lord, let him be accursed. And everybody says, that's right. And I have faith because I decided to believe. I have mental assent that Jesus is Lord and died for my sins. Love, love that draws them away from sin. Love that makes them fight bad habits. Love that puts them on their face in contrition. Love that lifts their hands and hearts in worship. No way. And they don't think it matters because nobody's saying it. So, consider it said that you must be so changed, so born of God, that your emotions change as well. That is, you you start questing for joy in God. Now, before the break here, we've got a couple minutes, let me raise an objection that's real practical and deal with it, because this can be very discouraging at first. It, It usually is, because we all know we don't love God the way we should that is delight in him, enjoy him, rest in him, and have all these series of emotions. We know we're fickle people, we're up and down. What if, let's just use worship as an example now. What if you are called upon to worship on Sunday morning? You wake up and you know it is right to go to the house of the Lord, be with God's people, listen to his word, and lift your heart in praise and adoration to the And you don't feel like it at all. There's nothing there. It's flat. What do you do? I've I've said several times from the pulpit at Bethlehem that I think worship happens in three stages. And all of them are genuine worship. Though one is very inferior to the other and this one is to this. Let me start at the top and give you a descending description of worship. The first act of worship, you you know very very clearly, namely, um, it's overflowing joy in God. When you're full, you walk into the service and you burst in. and there's no problem at all to let it out. Second is when you don't have that fullness, but you have the grace at least to to want it so bad. That the longing is almost sweet. And you're there bowed in the pew saying, God restored me the joy of my salvation. But let the service end without opening my eyes to your beauty. A lot of us find ourselves in that situation. But there are times when you don't even feel that longing. Nevertheless, there's Enough grace to break your heart that you don't. So that you you bow there, sort of numb maybe with discouragement and depression, weariness or whatever. And you just sort of get choked up and say, I'm so sorry that I'm this this way. I'm so sorry that I don't even desire you like I should. I think God is delighted and honored by it because it shows that he's the source of joy. You're having an experience that is putting it far off up into the mountain right now, but you know it's there and you're acknowledging it's there and you're doing it with realness, authenticity. If you were to ask me, well, what if I can't even do that? What if I can't even be sorry that I don't desire? Then I would say, you cannot worship at all today. In fact, it is a dangerous situation that you're in. You could be on the brink of never wanting it again. You can go so far in worldliness and hardness of heart that there's no return. So my answer is... When you don't feel it, do do these three things at least. Number one, repent of the lack of feeling for God. Don't say it doesn't matter. Don't say, I'm going to go to church anyway and do my duty. I'll sing those hymns, I'll put in my money, and I'll listen to the preacher, and I'll have done my duty this morning. That is not right. First, repent. Repent. Of not loving and delighting in God. Second, pray earnestly that God would restore the joy of your salvation. Ask Him to. You know that word "restore" is uh, a precious word to me. I saw it when I was doing the research for this book, whatever. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He, what? Restores my soul. That means David had bad days. And that's good news. That God is a restorer. He doesn't cast off his people. And then I discovered that Psalm 19, when it says the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring or reviving the soul, it's the same word. I said, so there's the place he does it, his word. So that's the third thing you should do is give yourself to meditation upon the scriptures in hope that God will open your eyes and grant you to see wonderful things out of his law. And then fourthly... Go ahead and do your duty. Pick up your broom. If you get Eternity Magazine, I just read it today. Um, Elizabeth Elliot, I admire almost beyond words. and I know she's been at this church just recently, in fact. The reason I admire Elizabeth Elliot so much is because she is so rugged. This article is called When... The storm rages, pick up the broom. A, a, a widow, a woman's husband dies. The lawyer cheats her out of her estate, and she comes home, a penniless widow with eight children between the ages of four and fourteen. And her daughter is despairing beyond words, and her mother picks up the broom and starts sweeping and the daughter is, uh, is the one being reported about. And she says, the whisk of that room saved her. Mother <laughs> sweeping the kitchen floor. And Elizabeth, that's Elizabeth Elliot personified to me. And she describes how, when she and her daughter were moving up one river, and she didn't say whether it was before or after the tragedy, yeah, I assume it's after the tragedy, the loss of her husband. It was pouring rain. They were in a tent. They had to get into an open dugout canoe. It was three days upriver. And she woke up in the morning, wet all over. She was discouraged out of her mind, this little girl. And, uh, and they had to go out in the rain in the canoe. And she said, so I picked up my broom and got in the canoe. And by the end of the day, the joy had returned. That's my point. Go ahead and pick up the broom when you don't have the joy. But don't say the joy doesn't count. Pray that in the picking up the broom the joy will return. It does. It does again and again. I'm going to have for a break. I have some things to say on this point. Let me take one more thing and then we'll take the break. Um, hospital visitation is not my cup of tea in the ministry. And I do it regularly. I did it today. I saw two people in the hospital today. When I say it's not my cup of tea, I mean by nature I'd rather read or write or preach. Um, And yet I know that it's good for my people and that it's immensely helpful to their faith, which I want to help sustain. And so I preach to myself when there is a necessity to do it that it's worthwhile and that it will, in fact, bring me more joy than if I neglect my duties. And I don't always feel that. So I'm on my way, then, picking up my broom, going to the hospital, like I went down to Northwestern today to see two people. And uh, while I'm going, I'm regularly rehearsing in my mind texts that might be encouraging to people and uh, trying to say something to myself that will lift my load and make me glad because you can't minister to anybody else if you're not glad. And God, so many times has met me in the elevator.
1: <laughs>
0: or sometimes He puts it off a little bit longer until I'm sitting there, halfway through the conversation with Margaret or whoever, and and uh, and he, he He makes me say, looking into her eyes, "It's good to be here. This is good. This is sweet.
1: Aren't you glad you're here, John?"
0: And I, I generally, by the time I'm done, feel immensely glad that I followed through. So, go ahead and do the things that must be done praying that God will restore your joy in the act. So, reason number three was pursue your joy because joy and all the other affections are commanded and are essential, they're essential not just optional in the life of a born again person. Well, let's stop here take a break, and then I'll pick up the last three uh, after the break. The funny thing about, I just got to tell you this story about Ralph Winter. He is so funny. I like him so much. He's got a blurb on the back of this. <laughs> this is a remarkable and profoundly basic book. Don't let that, don't let the subtitle throw you off. He hates the term Christian. He uh, did. <laughs> the desire for God is wonderfully linked to the cause of missions in an unusual powerful way. He never read the book. <laughs> he, I called him up on the phone uh, mid-January and I said, Ralph, can I, I sent you a copy of the book. Can you give me a blurb for it? He said, sure, take this down.
1: <laughs> so he
0: dictates this sentence to me on the phone. So I call up Multnomah. I said, Ralph Winter said this. They put it on the back of the book. And, uh, yesterday he calls and he says, John, I didn't know there was a whole chapter on missions in this book. This is great. And he wants to take that chapter and print it in Mission Frontiers and uh, make a little booklet out of it and sell it separately. He says, get that permission from Multnomah for me.
1: I have no idea. I
0: didn't read it yet.
1: <laughs>
0: He's funny. He must have just uh, based it on the fact that I told him a few things about it in the letter I
1: sent.
0: He just flies by the seat of his pants all the time. All the time. He came to speak at Bethel last year or two years ago. He stayed at my house overnight and the guy came to get him. Bill's over. He's came to get him in the morning. About half an hour until he's supposed to speak. 10.20 or something. Bethel. And uh, Bill comes in to get him and he says, Bill, by the way, what was it i was supposed to talk about this morning?
1: <laughs> he prepared, prepared, prepared
0: a whiz. Working in the car on the way over. Get his talk ready. He gets a lot of things done. Reason number four. Why you should pursue your joy in everything you do and never deny it but only nurture it and fix it on God is this. It combats pride and self-pity. Pursuing your own joy in God and in obedience to God combats pride and self-pity. Now, I'm just going to take for granted that you agree that we ought not to have pride self-pity. I didn't take it for granted in the book. I argued for it, but I'll take it for granted here. Let me tell you why I combat pride and then tell you why I think it combats self-pity. Christian hedonism combats pride because it puts you in the position of a beggar. It combats pride because it puts you in the position of an empty vessel When you go to God saying to him without you I can't live. Without you I can't have fulfillment. Without you I don't have the joy I long for. That is not pride talking. That's brokenness and emptiness and humility talking. The pursuit of your own pleasure in God does not come from pride. It comes from a
1: an awakening
0: of the fact that we can't benefit God, we can only benefit from God. There are so many people who say things like, give your best to God. There's probably truth in that, I think I know what they mean, but I just choke on that kind of language. Because God already owns my best. He owns everything in the world, and I can't improve upon him. I can't add to him. He's the owner of all peoples and all nature and all things. And there is nothing, Was it say in Romans 11, 35? Who has given a gift of God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. Nobody has ever given a gift of God that God should be repaid. In fact, one of my favorite texts on prayer, there's a whole chapter on prayer here. Steve Roy of our associate, he said that was the best chapter for him because he thought to capture the essence of Eden is the best. And Robinson Crusoe's text, the text if you've ever read Robinson Crusoe, the text he used when he got groomed on that island Psalm 50, verse 15 Call upon me in the day of trouble, and I will answer you, and you will glorify me. You see what God is saying? He's saying, look, I have the riches. You're bankrupt. I get glory when I pay the bills. Ring me up. (laughs) That's the meaning of prayer. It is not pride talking when you dial in God and say, I'm broke today. I need you so bad. Okay? Now, what about self-pity? What is self-pity? Let me read you a paragraph that I like. You know, if I had to pick one of the two best paragraphs out of my book, these would be the two. These are the ones I'm in love with. (laughs) You can be in love with your own writing without being a nerd. (laughs) (laughs) The nature and depth of human pride are illuminated. I I, I think the reason I like this paragraph so much is because there was so much self-discovery in it. I am a husband and a male, and I have been discovering so much about the male dynamics in his relationship with his wife in 18 years of marriage and 20 years of going with Noel. Um, And what I have discovered is that we men have a love-hate relationship with the mothering of our wives. We hate to be treated like children. And yet, you watch a man come home 10.30 at night after a long day's work. Everything on him and in his face says, stroke me. Tell me I put in a long, hard day.
1: <laughs> Feel
0: sorry for me. Serve me something. little puppy. <laughs> Hit my head. That's true. I know it's true. I do it all the time. And I think about it in my feeling. I'm supposed to be the leader in this house. I'm supposed to be a man. And I have this I have this little boy little puppy in me that wants to be pitied if I put in a hard day. If I've been criticized at church. Tell me Noel well, how I'm okay. And, and that they were knuckleheads. to say that.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> And I think it is basic. Let me read the paragraph. You'll see why there was so much self-discovery in this. Uh, The nature and depth of human pride are illuminated by comparing boasting and self-pity. Both are manifestations of pride. Boasting is the response of pride to success. Self-pity is the response of pride to suffering. Boasting says... I deserve admiration because I have achieved so much. Self-pity says, I deserve admiration because I have sacrificed so much. Boasting is the voice of pride in the heart of the strong. Self-pity is the voice of pride in the heart of the weak. Boasting sounds self-sufficient. Self-pity sounds self-sacrificing. The reason self-pity does not look like pride is that it appears to be needy, but the need arises from a wounded ego, and the desire is not really for others to see them as helpless, but as heroes. The need that self-pity feels does not come from a sense of unworthiness, but from a sense of unrecognized worthiness. It is the response of unapplauded pride. That's one of the most penetrating insights I got in the last three years. And it got I got it in the mirror. Now, how does Christian hedonism go to war against self-pity? Which is pride. Flip side. The underside of pride. Do you remember... The story of the rich young ruler and the response of the disciples to what happened. Let me tell it for you and show you, which was another discovery in the fall of 1983. I can remember so clearly when I got this. The rich young man comes, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, sell everything you've got, follow me. He goes away downcast because he's rich. Jesus shakes his head and says, it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into kingdom heaven. And the jaws of the disciples dropped. They never heard such a thing. Hard for rich people, who have the blessing of God upon their lives, because they have money, to get into heaven? And Jesus says, but they say, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, with men it is impossible, but not with God. God can save rich people. He can get camels through eyes of needles. He can do the miracle of conversion to take the, way, the love away from money. And then Peter says,
1: "Picture it. We've left everything that followed you. What does he say? What is he asking for? He wants nothing
0: now." What I wonder what tone of voice you would put into the mouth of Jesus at this point. Listen to what Jesus said. I'll tell you what tone of voice I think he had. I think he said something like, Peter, get off that self-pity kick. Actually, what he said was, Peter, no one has left house or home or brothers or sisters or lands or mothers or fathers for my name's sake who will not receive back a hundredfold in this life, and eternal life in the age to come. Get off this sacrificial self-pity kick. You can't outgive me. That's what I think Jesus said. Which means Peter should have been pursuing his discipleship out of the joy in those hundredfold reward and in eternal life. And if he had been, he wouldn't have been self-pitying. So Christian hedonism cuts the root of self pity. You, you don't expect pity for doing what you love to do. Nobody pities me for eating chocolate sundaes. And very few people now at Bethlehem pity me for preaching three times on Sunday. Because every time somebody says nice sermon, I say, It's my pleasure. I love to preach. I die if I couldn't preach. I quit teaching at Bethel because I had to preach. Don't pity me. I'm eating Sundays every Sunday morning. And, And you've got experiences like that. Here's another analogy. My wife spends an afternoon making a dinner and you come over to the house and she's been expecting you and she's worked hard all afternoon to make a nice dinner. She spreads the table and you and several other friends come, and you eat it, and you enjoy it. And when you're leaving that evening later, after we've had a chance to talk a while, you express your thanks to her at the door, and you say, the meal was wonderful, in you must have slept all afternoon Now, there are two possible responses. One ridiculous response would be, you're right, I sure did, and I'm glad you recognize. <laughs> now that's the response of self-pity or she could say which you would say probably or she would say it's my pleasure I'm so eager to do it. I love doing it for you I love doing it for you it was my pleasure now do you see what, what's happening there Christian hedonism is stopping self-pity it's cutting. It's a way of accepting graciously a compliment, and yet turning away its pride-producing effect, and its self-pity-producing effect. It, you can see it's so easy. Just pick out something in your own life where you work real hard, because you love to do it. And somebody comes along who doesn't love to do it, and they say you're awesome.
1: <laughs> it's awesome that you'd spend all day
0: working on that. And you kind of look at it you. If you hated it, you'd probably say, I am, a, I am sort of awesome. Aren't I? <laughs> but if you loved it, if it brought you joy all day long, you'd say, say i love to do it. It's like me. I mean, I'm a, I'm a student. And there are people who don't like to read. Well, I can sit at my desk for twelve hours, hand in hand, reading, and not make one moment's sacrifice. <laughs> and other people hate to read so much they kind of sit there and say, Wow, you're a real student. <laughs> no, I'm a hedonist. <laughs> and so if you if you are the kind of person who finds your joy in obedience Pride and self-pity, go. It's such a great protection against the sin of pride. Dr. Fuller, from whom I learned so much, and who I mentioned in the preface to this book, and I quote him all over the place, met him in 1968 in a class on hermeneutics. I went to the same church he went to. He teaches the Fuller Seminary. And I remember something so clear at my ordination. I asked him to speak at my ordination in 1975. And when Ray Orkin was introducing him, he extolled him like this. He said, what I love about Dan Fuller is that not only does he hold his own with world-class hermeneutical scholars in teaching and writing, But he's an usher in the balcony of our church on Sunday and assumes that lonely role. Welcome, Dan. Says Dan. Dr. Fuller, as though he knew what was coming, and I know he didn't because this is off the cuff, he stood up and he did what my wife would do at the door after the dinner. He quoted, I don't remember the psalm number, he quoted the psalm, he said something like this, Well, thank you, Ray, but you know that in the Bible it says, uh, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than dwell in the tents of wickedness. A day in thy presence is better than a thousand elsewhere. Now, what was he doing? He was deflecting the pride-producing compliment by saying, I'm an usher because there is reward promised to us. Christian hedonism deflects pride. I'm up there because the Bible says this is the greatest thing in the world,
1: be a doorkeeper
0: in the house of the Lord. Well, enough illustrations to get that point across. The the fourth reason was pursue your joy with all your heart Because it cuts the nerve of pride and self-pity. Fifth reason. Christian hedonism promotes genuine love for people. Christian hedonism promotes genuine love for people. Now this is one of the hardest ones for people to believe at the outset. Because they've been told a thousand times, if you pursue your own pleasure, you're not a loving person. You're a selfish person. Selfishness and love are opposites. But let me just, it's real simple to see when you stop and think about it. Loving acts are genuine to the degree that they are not done begrudgingly. Do agree with that? Loving acts are genuine to the degree that they are not done begrudgingly. Here, missions is a mighty act of love. Keep that back in your mind. Well, what's the opposite of begrudgingly? Well, a weak way to talk about the opposite of begrudgingly would be to say willingly. You should do things
1: willingly.
0: Do your acts of love willingly. A strong way to talk about the opposite of begrudgingly would be eagerly. So, I think genuineness in acts of love implies that the act be done willingly, eagerly, joyfully, cheerfully. God loves what? A cheerful giver. I assume that means he's displeased with uncheerful giving. I assume that means that if you undertake to deny yourself the cheer in giving, you will displease God. And not love people. So here comes the plate down the uh, row, and you've got your checkbook in your hand. If you say, I didn't have to write this. This preached on tithing or something, and I'd love to get that stereo. If I write this, I won't be able to get it, but God's not impressed. He does not he does not like that. It's love. It's love. I mean you're supporting the gospel, right? Isn't that an act of love to support the gospel? Pay the preacher's salary? Missions? Not very it's not very loving. Because love includes a motive of joy. God loves a cheerful gift. When you write that check, you must delight. If you don't delight, you're not pleasing God and not loving. There's so many texts I could take you to and think which ones I can leave out here. Um, Probably one of the most important passages, not even one I've got written down here. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I think this is a beautiful paradigm of love. It says in 2 Corinthians 8 that Paul had been traveling through Macedonia and he had collected money for the poor saints in Jerusalem and the Macedonians had done something that simply blew Paul's mind. They had given so generously and joyfully, he couldn't believe it. And he wrote to the Corinthians to test that their love too was genuine, he says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians 8. Let me read you these first couple of verses as a, a model of what love is. We want you to know, brethren... About the grace of God which has been shown in the churches of Macedonia. So That's the first and most important thing. God poured grace out upon the churches in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of liberality on their part. Now notice that. Where did love come from? The wealth of liberality is an act of love towards the poor saints in Jerusalem. It was an overflow, Paul says, of the abundance of joy that they had in the grace of God. So there's my model for love. Here's an empty sinner in Philippi. Paul comes in and preaches the gospel. God reaches down, opens the heart, pulls out all the crap that's been trying to satisfy that heart for all those years. And he begins to pour grace and mercy and peace and joy and love from God into that heart. And as it rises to the top, is joy, and as soon as it gets to the top, it says in verse 2, it overflowed in liberality to the poor saints in Jerusalem. And he calls it love in verse 8. Here's my definition of love. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Love is the overflow of joy in God that meets the needs of others. Acts that are attempted, that do not flow from and aim at joy in God aren't genuine love. Which is why Paul could say in 1 Corinthians 13, 4 or 3, though I give my body to be burned and have not love, I am nothing. Though I give all my goods to feed the poor and have not love, I am nothing. Why? How can you give your body to be burned and have not love? When Jesus said, this is, greater love has no man than that he lay down his life for his friend. Paul says, you can lay down your life for your friend and not have love. It's because you can lay down your life begrudgingly. You can lay down your life without any joy in God, without delighting in God. It isn't the overflow of joy In God, when you lay down your life, you're not like Jesus who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him in God. So I think it's fair to say that Christian hedonism stands squarely in the service of love. Let me give you another illustration because it's so personal to me and you can apply it to yourself as it fits. Um, Hebrews chapter 13, 17 is addressed. To, to the lay people in the church concerning their pastors. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls, as men who will have to give an account. That they may do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be that would not be profitable to you. Yeah, just let think about that. If your pastor, it says, does his work with groaning and not with joy, you won't profit. Therefore, do what you need to do, or what you can do, to make his ministry joyful. I'll leave that to you to figure out. Let me take the other side for myself as a pastor. This text says, I will not profit my people if I do my work begrudgingly or groaning. Which means I can't love my people unless I pursue my joy in my work. If I don't find joy in my work, then my people won't profit. And if they don't profit, I don't love them. I don't care whether they profit, I don't love them. And this text says they won't profit if I groan in my work. Therefore, I must pursue not groaning, which is pursuing joy in my work. In fact, isn't that why First Peter 5 says, let the elders tend the flock not under constraint, but willingly, not for sordid gain, but eagerly, not domineering, but giving them an example. Willingly, eagerly, giving them an example. Because you won't profit them if you don't. That applies to your Sunday school teaching. It applies to your marriage. It applies to your work. If you say, it doesn't matter whether I get any joy out of this or not, the people you're dealing with won't profit spiritually. you feel fill their bellies, maybe. The Bible is so concerned with the spiritual profit that comes through a right attitude in which we do things. A missionary who crosses a culture begrudgingly because of parental expectations. Our guilt conscience is going to do more harm than good. The best analogy for a missionary is the patient-doctor analogy. We're all sick with hell-bent sickness. It's going to end us up in hell if we don't get healed from our sin-sick soul. God is the great physician. He comes to us through Jesus Christ with cleansing and healing and therapy. He rescues us from our death ward and he says, I'm going to make you live. It will take now a lifetime to get you completely purified of this disease of sin, but I have a special therapy for you, a regimen, a health regimen. You should go and translate the Bible If you go to the mission field without believing that's your health regimen appointed by your great physician, and you're going there for your health, then you're going to turn your mission into works instead of faith, and you're going to bring more misery upon your people than health, spiritually. If you go there as one who is rejoicing in God's therapy for you, then they will look upon you, just like people looked upon David in Psalm 40. Remember Psalm 40? He's in the pit, and he says, I waited patiently for the Lord and cried to him. How long he waited? Who knows, a month, a week, three months. God came to me. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. The best evangelist is a broken patient who's being healed by God. And so, don't go as heroes, go as patients. I'll read you, when I'm done here, a text from David Livingston that came out of your textbook that I put in the book here to show you that. One last text or two on this point of not being able to genuinely love unless you pursue your joy would be Romans 12:8, where it says to do acts of mercy with cheerfulness, 2 Corinthians 9, 7, the Lord loves a cheerful giver, as we saw earlier. And I'm passing over, just because of time, a text from 1 John 5, 2 to 3, which would be interesting for you to look at on the same point. Let me close with the last argument, which is the most important, probably. The sixth reason for why you should... And all of your world Christian discipleship, all of your mission study, all your mission labor, all your mission promotion, and all your prayer, pursue your joy, is that it glorifies God more than anything else. It glorifies God. This brings us back where we started back in October. Whatever you delight in most... You glorify most. People sometimes object, Piper, you're making a God out of pleasure. And I always answer, no. We've already made a God out of whatever we take most pleasure. God out of pleasure. Okay. Um, Pleasure is a subjective inner experience God, money, sex, drugs, power, prestige, are external realities. And so whenever I say, go for pleasure, I mean, go for what gives you pleasure. It's shorthand language. You make a God out of whatever objective reality you find subjective pleasure in. And so I'm saying, pursue pleasure with all your might in God, and I'll make a God out of God when I do that. People who pursue money make a God out of money, and they glorify money. People glorify sex if they live for sex and find their joy in sex. You glorify your house if you live for your house and find all your joy in your house, and you glorify God if you live for the joy that he brings. The reason this is so important to stress is because you can pursue God in ways that don't glorify him. Listen to Isaiah 1.11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat of fed beasts. You can make God hold his nose when you go to worship, if you go for the wrong reason. That is, if you go in ways that don't accent and highlight his value and his delectableness. So how do you highlight the delectableness of God? By saying, ah, when you drink, By pursuing him as a satisfying treasure. The key text in my chapter in here on conversion is found in Matthew 13.44. And what does it say? The kingdom of heaven is like a man who finds a treasure in a field, and because of his joy, he sells all that he has and buys that field. He has just glorified that treasure. If he had opened the box in that treasure and seen oatmeal, he wouldn't have bought the field. If he had seen, um. $1,000, he might have bought the field. Make a little profit. If it's full of gold, he goes with joy to buy the
1: field.
0: With joy he bought. He sold everything. He sold his house. He sold his wedding ring. This is what self-denial means. This is self-denial. You sell your wedding ring. You sell your house. You, you do anything to get that field. The field and the gold are God. You'll do anything to get God. And that glorifies God. My favorite illustration is my wife. When I come home on my anniversary with a big handful of roses, and I open the door and I give her a handful of roses, she says, oh, Johnny, they're beautiful. Why did you? And I said, "It's my duty. <laughs> she, she is belittled and dishonored. What's wrong with duty? I mean, duty's good, right? We should do you good. But not like that. What should I say to glorify my wife? When she says, "Daddy, I love her, Why did you? I should say, Why did I? Because it makes me so happy to bring you rose. And if I say later on, i got something special planned. We're going to go out. Get dressed. And she says, Oh, great. Why did you? She would say that.
1: <laughs> but
0: I should answer. Because nothing makes me happier than to spend the evening with you. She does not respond by saying, you self-centered hedonist. (laughs) She knows that for me to say, you, Noel, and spending time with you and looking into your face over pizza (laughs) makes me happy. That's an honor to her. It's hedonism, but it's an honor to her. You honor people by enjoying being around them. And so it is with God. Worship is the delight you have in the presence of God. And therefore, the pursuit of joy in worship is essential. Let me uh, conclude by reading a text and then a quote from David Livingston. I first ran across this text a couple of years ago and it frightened me because I want more than anything to be biblical. And I know it's a great danger when you are building a system of theology, which I am, unashamedly, because I think it is tragic when people have pieces dangling around in their mind with no, and the puzzle pieces make no sense. They don't fit anywhere. The piece. We hear about God, and the peace. over hear about Jesus, and peace. Up here about motivation, and peace here, and there's kind of nothing. No, the, the puzzle is kind of there, and there's no picture that's beautiful at all. So I am building a, a system by which I can grasp God biblically, but I am submitted underneath the Bible in doing this, so that every word in the Bible has the opportunity to knock a piece out of my puzzle, shatter it if it wants to. And this was a piece I couldn't make fit at first. But then I read it again. I said, wow, goodness, I almost gave up one of the most beautiful supports. It starts out like this. This is Isaiah 58, 13, 14. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your own pleasure on my day, I kind of stopped and <laughs> don't say that, Lord. It's not good for my system. <laughs> but said it, and that's read on, it goes like this, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and from doing your own pleasure on my day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride. On the heights of the earth, I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now, that captures self-denial and Christian hedonism. There are pleasures I should abandon. There are stupid things to do on Sunday, like spend the whole day in front of the TV, when there are gold mines of Christian biography to be feeding on. Or worship with God's people. The point is, don't sell your soul for a bowl of pottage on Sunday. Go for gold. Delight in the Lord. And don't talk about self-sacrifice when you do. I just, the, the chapter I did in Missions on this book just so thrilled me. Uh, what I discovered in reading biographies, that I feel so confident about what I'm saying. You know, if somebody were to say to me, Piper, the reason you talk like that is because you've never experienced suffering. You've never been in the third world. You you, you don't know what life is like. You, You couldn't talk that way if you've suffered. I'd listen to that, and I would take it to heart, and I would say, I know that I have not suffered much. My stresses and pains in this life have been nothing compared to what others. But I have read a lot of sufferers. Talk to some, and they talk hedonism. They're God's people. I'll close with this quote from David Livingston, and it came right out of your textbook, uh, Ralph Winter book, footnote
1: uh, 13, some page uh, 259,
0: I think. Um, it goes like this David Livingston in 1857 said, For my part, I have never ceased to rejoice that God has appointed me to such an office. People talk of the sacrifice I have made in spending so much of my life in Africa. Can that be called a sacrifice which is simply paid back as a small part of great debt owing to God which we can never repay? Is that a sacrifice which brings its own blessed reward in healthful activity, the consciousness of doing good, peace of mind, and a bright hope of a glorious destiny hereafter? Away with the word in such a view. Away with the word sacrifice and with such a thought. It is emphatically no sacrifice. Say rather, it is a privilege. Anxiety, sickness, suffering, or danger, now and then with the foregoing of common conveniences and charities of this life, may make us pause and cause the spirit to waver and the soul to sink, but let this only be for a moment. All these are nothing when compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us and for us. I never made a sacrifice. That's what Hudson Taylor said in The Spiritual Secret, and that's what David Livingston said, and that's why I wrote this book, because I think it is tragic how many young people are being told, and older people, that the essence of world Christian discipleship is Somehow figure out a way to deny this massive longing in your heart to be happy. Let's pray. We praise you, Almighty God, as one who is infinitely bountiful in joy and love. We thank you that you have been pleased in the very essence of your abundance to spill over in a creation and a redemption that is specifically designed for your glory and our joy in one wonderful gospel stroke. And I pray that these people here would grasp the glory of the gospel and pursue their joy, not in this world, nor any of its conveniences, nor health or wealth or prosperity, but only in you and in the manifold ways of love.
1: For your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.